When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Isha Dattar, the executive director of New Harvest, a nonprofit research institute that funds open, public, cultured meat research. She has been pioneering cellular agriculture since 2009, driven by a passion to see transformative technology create a better world. This is an episode that's not just for those who believe in the potential of cellular agriculture, but also for listeners who are skeptical or downright opposed to the idea of engineering our food as a way to tackle the problems with the food system. There's a lot in this conversation that will open your mind to different perspectives on the issue and give you a very clear understanding of the state of cellular agriculture technology and the potential paths this technology could take in the future. But more importantly, this is a conversation about the benefit and pitfalls of innovation and how a lot of it depends on who controls the technology and gets to shape the story of this new food. While Isha offers a very refreshing and positive outlook of food tech, she's not naively optimistic and actually spends a lot of her time analyzing the risks of new technology with the goal of building the right guardrails in the form of standards and norms. I found her insights practical and backed by deep first-hand knowledge of the technology itself, but also appreciate how she provides an expansive view of the forces, both good and bad, that are shaping this technology. Isha offers a new narrative around cellular agriculture and why we are at an exciting time when we still have hope of not only reimagining the future of meat, but also the entire food system. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Shadatara, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you for having me now. Isha, let's start at the beginning, because I know you've been involved in the cellular agriculture space for over a decade now, which is not something a lot of people can claim to have been involved in. Um, how did you get interested in the science of food in general? Um, I got interested in the science of food by being interested in eating it. <laughs> so um, I was doing a cell biology degree here at the University of Alberta. And when you're a cell biologist, I was actually doing a biochem minor. And so when you're in those fields, you usually think about everything in the context of medicine and like enzyme pathways and all this kinds of stuff related to health. And I took a 
walk kind of in the agriculture department of my school and saw a poster on the wall for a meat science class and kind of wondered to myself, like, why aren't we learning about food in cell bio and biochem? Like it is, it is like the most personal interaction with biology is like eating stuff. And so I, I primarily took that course because it felt like the kind of course material I could talk about with my mom. <laughs> like she doesn't want to hear about like how insulin works, but she would love to hear about how muscle becomes meat or, you know, how what we feed chickens turns into the nutrition of the chicken meat and all that kind of stuff. So I took the course primarily because I thought it would be a great way to kind of connect around biology. And then I learned about the, I, I, well, first of all, I learned about the impact of raising animals on the earth kind of in every aspect what it does for people and animals and the environment and just thought I've been lied to like all of this time I was focused on fossil fuels as this huge environmental disaster but you know animal agriculture is such a big one and in many ways it's the most solvable like or more solvable um, through dietary change and so on and so, of course, my first thing was like, we all have to become vegan, then we'll solve that problem. I realized that that has been like the line of thinking for thousands of years and that lots of people have been working on that question and problem. And I didn't really have a lot to add to it. Um, so it kind of got discouraged. But then a few classes later, my professor, poultry scientist, Dr. Betty, introduced us to the idea that we could grow meat from cells. And it was just an aha moment. I was like, I was learning about how to grow other things from cells and you know, the hour before in my other classes, but those were all kind of for medical applications. And the idea that we could grow food from cells just seemed like such an obvious next step. And it was just a, a matter of when it would happen and how it would happen, not if it would happen, in my opinion. Um, so that is what got me into this. I think that was 2009 that I first heard about it. And like, I, I wrote a big paper about it, started talking about it on campus and somehow ended up where I am today talking to you <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know, and, and I obviously, I've, I know about your backstory and, and the paper and how it eventually led you, you sent it to the, 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 the founder of New Harvest, which was an organization yeah. that existed and that, I guess, you know, skipping ahead a bit, but one, one thing led to another. And, and when they were looking for an executive director, you joined New Harvest. Now, you made that decision uh, many years ago now when things were not the way they are at the moment. And maybe you have, uh, I mean, obviously you have played a role in in getting um, this sort of nascent industry started in a way because now you look around there's what 80 plus companies in the cellular agriculture space um but that wasn't the case back then and so when you went down that journey and and got started with new harvest what were your motivations besides you being interested and passionate about the subject matter where at that point in time i'm curious back in you know 2010 2011 or whenever the time frame you joined them what were you thinking the the path of this project was going to be? Like, how, what time horizons were you looking at? Did you see, you know, there would be a few startups or maybe there'd be just a few research uh, projects in the next decade? Or did you even think about the future? You were just excited about the present and the work you were doing? Um, 
No, I think I think visioning and thinking about the future is absolutely necessary for anyone working in this field because the food system is so complex and introducing new technology is so complex that kind of every piece of news that comes across your desk like will change the trajectory of the future that you imagined. And so I think when I when I first learned about this technology or like the concept of it in that meat science class I had also just watched the movie The Corporation, which really demonizes uh, Monsanto talking about GMO seeds and everything. And I feel like GMOs are a failed technology in some ways because we failed to see GMO as a tool and instead saw it as a way to increase kind of corporate power. Um, but then ignored that genetically modifying things could also mean we could create more nutritious food or increase access or create drought resistant crops and da 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 da. And so I, I just had this kind of worry that cellular agriculture might have a similar fate to GMOs where it's not the tech, that the technology sucks. It's just that the way it was governed and owned and introduced into the world prevented it from like realizing the benefit that it could have. And so I think one of my greatest motivations in being in this field is trying to usher in the best world possible for Salag where it does do the most good. And if we can't realize positive impacts that we do properly prevent it from having negative <laughs> impacts. Um, and that's not me trying to be a pessimist. I think actually there's a lot of in enormous benefit that comes from addressing the problems of animal agriculture and that the status quo is like simply unaccept unacceptable and that we need to move beyond it. But there are better ways to move beyond it and lesser ways to move beyond it. And, you know, when we have such a opportunity for transformative change, we should try and transform it towards the best positive change. <laughs> so that's my motivation. Um, a lot of people think I'm vegan. I'm not. I, I continue to eat everything. I've gone through a lot of phases of changing my diet and so on. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's really up to individual people to have to change the food system. Like everything is stacked against that as a, as a meaningful action. Um, I think it's a great way to live your values and everything. But I think part of me continuing to eat everything is living my values in terms of being the average consumer, like being the average person that eats what is sold to them and marketed to them and made shiny on TV. Like I'm, I really am the average, I eat a lot of fast food. I don't, I don't eat healthy. I just try and uh, kind of live my life. And, and so I don't, um, I do care about animals um, despite eating them. I think that a large proportion of the world does that too. And I think changing that large proportion of the world through a lot of complex interventions is going to be more meaningful than trying to guilt someone into not participating in, in stuff like that. Um, so that, that's my point of view. <laughs> no, I love it. And I, I'm so glad you brought up um, Monsanto and GMOs um, and how that played a role in you looking at this technology almost in its pure form and, uh, kind of wanting to protect it in a way <laughs> because you see how yes, you know technology is not it. good or bad right i mean I, and i worked in technology for a decade before i got interested in food and 
food is is not the same thing and and food and and I kind of want to put a pin on this part but because I do want to get into new harvest for a bit and then we'll we'll get into some bigger issues but just one more thing on that is that food is not the same as say internet technology or uh creating an app food uh, the, the the more I learn about food, the more I realize that we don't have much freedom when it comes to choices as consumers. And even when you try to actually become a participant in the food system, either through uh, a company or a product that you launch, you eventually find that there are some very clear boundaries to how the system operates. And there are very few um, points of control. And nearly mm-hmm. every little bit of the food industry is largely controlled by a few companies. And so we, mm-hmm. and that's how it's evolved, and that's how it's now controlled globally. And that may have, in some ways, been the reason for the, for the GMO story is because we, we took what could have been an interesting technology and allowed that narrative of that technology to be driven by this one company that did X, Y, and Z with it that now has for many people across the world and in some parts of the world, even from a regulatory standpoint, has just uh, basically uh, closed the doors for any future potential with that technology. That's mm-hmm. a great warning story. And that, so that's I'm going to put a pin in that one. And then the second one is let's look at the system we're, hope, we're all hopefully trying to change. You mentioned the impact mm-hmm. of animal agriculture on, on the planet. Even if you look at how industrial animal agriculture emerged and you look at the history of factory farming it was well you can if you look at it back and you purely analyze it from a historical standpoint it was a lot of unintended consequences it was a drive towards efficiency it was trying to lower the cost of meat and to meet the de- rising demand for meat and before you know it we end up in this horrific system that now we depend on for for most of our meat um, and dairy so I'm going to put a pin in that because I do want to, for those listening that may not know what New Harvest is, because you mentioned it, uh, let's talk about New Harvest, the work you've been doing at New Harvest. What is the organization and what's the mission? We are a nonprofit organization and our mission is to maximize the positive impact of cellular agriculture. And I'm glad you asked that because we recently changed our mission. Our mission used to be to build the field of cellular agriculture. And we recently shifted it towards maximizing positive impact because we've seen that the field has grown, but it has grown in a way that I think is really imbalanced and maybe isn't quite set up to maximize positive impacts. And so um, there's a lot of work to be done. But if I were to describe New Harvest in two words, I would say we are an ecosystem builder. and we kind of really embrace the complexity of who needs to be at the table in order for this technology to succeed. And how much of that is focusing purely on the science of cellular agriculture versus building an industry to support that technology or science? Or is it both? Like, is it a combination of both? Um. I'm just trying to wrap my head around your question. Uh, I think, so what we do kind of, if someone asks us, what do we do like day by day, we do support scientists, we support academic researchers. Um, But I think 
we do a lot of work that interacts with industry because um, unlike your average kind of science-driven industry, this field does not have a huge kind of foundation of academia behind it. Um, so there are a lot of kind of questions that are unanswered because academia would answer it, but there is no academia. You know, like there's the people that we fund, but that's a very small population compared to the number of companies that exist today. And so an, an example of how we kind of blur the line between industry and academia to build this kind of public infrastructure, public foundation of the space is uh, last year we did this really interesting industry-wide initiative where we brought together um, 50 companies from all around the world to figure out how do we approach the safety of cultured meat? Like how do we actually think about safety and how should we be evaluating it and what questions should we be asking to understand safety? And so the hope is for that publication to be out in a peer-reviewed journal was written in a very academic fashion. We had a lot of our research fellows like facilitating and moderating those meetings. But at the end of the day, the information was pulled out of willing companies who realized that we we do have like a lot of common problems, even in private industry that can be solved in a public forum. So that, that's kind of an example of like the novel stuff that we have to do to operate productively in a place without a map and a place without a foundation. True. And, and you know, and I appreciate you answering because the question was, uh, it's a strange one because there is, in, mm -hmm. in a way, there is no industry because there's no products on the market, at least here in the yeah. U.S. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there are startups. So there is this, this um, it's only a matter of time, right? It is, uh, it's a matter of time when we are going to see products on the market. So at the moment, we are sort of in this gray zone where, um, I've jokingly said cellular agriculture is, is a science project at the moment. It's a lot of research. Um, and it I totally don't is. think I've been wrong yeah. on that, right? I think a lot of the startups no. are also just doing research. For sure. So, but at the same time, you know, when I, when I mean industry, it's also the question is, yeah, you figure out the, the science of the, the technology. You find a way to uh, produce the products or the ingredients you're trying to create but then you have to find a market for it because no one launches a startup to do research only. No one invests in a startup to get, unless the outcome is purely to create IP that can be licensed. So, which is taking us into another topic. So I won't go there now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, but I appreciate that. So I guess you have to do both and you are sort of at this phase because of the nature of how the technology mm -hmm. is being researched and deployed and who is working on it you kind of have to sit at this intersection of academia plus um, startups in the space that right. may be the future industry uh, or part right. of it. And, you know, maybe uh, we're using industry and academia as these terms for things that we're familiar with, but perhaps the more descriptive terms are like private R&D and public R&D and 100%. trying to negotiate more public um, by uniting the private, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, you bring up a really interesting point about there not being in, an industry, but there is, there are doors that are closed and doors that are open. And there's a lot of shared challenges. And when, and, and we'll again, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm putting a pin on too many things now, but, <laughs> but these are, this is really how the technology will unfold, which is why I want to leave them to a li little bit later. But 
the moment you get investment from um, existing players in the meat and dairy industry, so the likes of Tyson or JBS, you are now in a way connected to that industry. And they, whatever small way or big way, have a say or have an insight into how they will shape the use of this technology. So I think we are sort of, we had that cusp very soon where we'll be transitioning into this new phase where it'll become about market share and um, and and building brands and success where at this point I think it's mm-hmm. you're right it's mostly on the R&D side and it's either private or public mm-hmm. for anyone so I, I think a lot of people listening and let's let's just let me reframe that actually so a lot of people when they think of cellular agriculture or cell-based meat or cell-cultivated meat and all the different terms we've used for it over the years, um, they think of the GMO story. They think of biotechnology, and I've seen the, I've heard the word frankenfoods being used. I think it was used on this podcast previously. And people, a lot of people react instinctually kind of with fear about this not being natural. It is and that by virtue of that, it's probably not a good idea. And why do we need to engineer our foods and create meat in a lab or create any ingredients in a lab when we do have farming and agriculture? So instead of a- answering why we need it, because I think we know why we need it, maybe mm-hmm. you can explain what it is and maybe dispel some of these myths or the fears that people have about the technology itself. Uh, to the extent that we know about safety and uh, and and the ability of these products to function as food. I love, first of all, skipping ahead and answering this question. So thank you for that. Um, so kind of at the most basic level, the, the concept of cellular agriculture is growing food from cells. And there's like a lot of different ways that you can grow food from cells. You could grow the actual kind of muscle cells that become meat, muscle cells, connective tissue cells, fat cells that become meat and actually consume those cells. Or you could grow things in cells, like using cells as the um, kind of factory to produce proteins and fats and that kind of stuff. But I think let's focus more on the meat stuff for the purposes of this conversation is to kind of focus a little bit. But um, I mean, the appeal to nature stuff is somewhat valid because we don't know how to do this yet. And so, um, you know, rather than trying to focus on what is nature, I think it's just helpful to focus on what is happening. Well, the idea is that we could feed cells um, nutrients, you know, amino acids, fats, water, da da da, feed those cells directly in a bioreactor, which kind of emulates a body. Um, And as those cells grow, they create edible tissues that then we could eat. And, you know, I don't, I, you know, I could, I'm kind of like biting my tongue because on one hand I'm saying how natural was it for us to produce corn the way we do and that kind of stuff. But I don't think that really answers the question. I think at the end of the day, it it 
is a technology with a lot of unknowns still. And so we aren't really in a great place to evaluate, is it safe? Um, because we just don't have that data. But in theory, there's really no reason why it couldn't be made safe. And so one of the things that I care about doing through New Harvest is ensuring that we have the systems of accountability and transparency that really invite people to understand these processes and to understand how we would show that it's safe rather than trying to answer the question of is it safe or is it not? Because almost anything could be made safe or not or not be made safe. We just need to have the way to evaluate it. And I think it's that way to evaluate that's really missing right now and has me most worried about the field. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, any technology is kind of only as good as the support system around it and the systems of accountability, keeping it productive and useful. Yeah. And maybe I can ask a a more um, specific question, which is where did the... Mm -hmm. Where did the science come from? Is it partly, I'm assuming, from the field of tissue engineering um, mm-hmm. that has been been it has been in existence in medical science for for a while, um, and then, but that's not it, right? So that's one component, but there's also the component of being able to to use cells to extract proteins, which is another field. It's not tissue engineering necessarily. Yeah, cellular agriculture is really interesting interdiscipline because it just brings so many disciplines together. So there's a lot of learning from tissue engineering. There's a a lot of learning from kind of large scale fermentation. There's a lot of stuff from synthetic biology. There's a lot of chemical engineering, biochemical engineering, all kinds of stuff. Um, So yeah, where does the science come from? It comes from everywhere. Um, There's a lot more places it could come from too. Like we need a lot more food scientists. We need a lot more meat scientists. Um, We need a lot of bioprocess engineers. Uh, It's kind of a a field without a home right now. And and, and from when the moment you, going back to 2009, when you first got curious about this, the theoretically the science existed it was was it or am i wrong about that and was was it more a question of there wasn't enough funding or focus on it but in theory we we could have been doing this earlier if you chose to do this earlier um yes and no i think we have a conception of what science can do that is a little bit that like it really is a deep that's a really detail oriented (laughs) question so i think the idea of growing cells growing a lot of cells is something that we can do but growing a lot of muscle cells we haven't done before um so like there's a lot of examples in food and pharma where we we do a lot of mass cell culture but the outcome has never been can we create something tasty with great mouthfeel um, at scale, low cost, da, da, da. So like the, the technicality is there, but the kind of reality that makes it practical is not there at all. And, you know, I think we, we, even though we had a lot of understanding about cell culture, the first, the first bovine, so cow stem cell was only isolated in 2018. Um, so like we have, we know a lot about cells, but we don't necessarily know a lot about the cells from farmed animals. 
so that's kind of just to highlight, yeah, there's, we know a lot, but we don't know everything. And there are actually quite a lot of gaps that still need to be filled. And so it was the process of going down this path to do the research that then unlocks certain, you know, discoveries or breakthrough technologies that then enables you to go further along. So I'm assuming the last 10-ish years, we've just been um, on an accelerated path to getting to where we hopefully want to go. Would that be accurate way of describing what's been happening? Um, probably. Again, <laughs> a lot of the R&D is, is private R&D. And mm -hmm. so there, there isn't really an elevated public understanding of what cells matter, which are the best cells to grow, which are the healthiest, you know, like these kind of, kind of more fundamental questions, which I think would add a lot to the public discourse. Um, so I think we can assume that that's what's happening, but I think we've, I think we've kind of prematurely applied an engineering mindset to something that still has a lot of science questions to answer. Um, so we're, we're, we've come in and been like, oh no, this is just about, this is just an engineering problem. How do we do it at scale? Sure. There's, there's a lot of aspects that are engineering problems, but there's a lot of aspects that could just be public knowledge, science questions that like ask things like what is a meat cell, which, you know, is a big question, but like, that would be a great thing to answer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so so firstly, I, I, I appreciate your answers. It it does um it does provide a way more um simple it it doesn't overestimate the technology and you're you're offering I guess the word is you're offering a more humble take on it versus <laughs> this is the next best thing and we've figured it out and it's it's coming to market tomorrow. Um, well, that right. might be I mean, the case. I do think it's the next best thing. <laughs> I just don't know when next is. You know, I think um, I think the only way we're going to really get the most out of this technology is by filling in all these gaps. Um, and the way that our field has developed is just really heavily private. That's not pointing fingers at people and saying people are greedy or anything like that. It's just our system incentivizes privatization more than it does public. Like that's just, it's not because anyone's a bad person or anything. It's just like, that's the easiest money to come by. Um, public funding for science has been declining for a long time and continues to be on, on the decline, especially in the US. So I think we're just kind of, you know, being resourceful to move this field forward. And that's why I'm so optimistic about it is that at the end of the day, the people behind these companies know that they're trying to solve a really hard problem as a startup. And I think that everyone is still very mission driven um, and they do really understand kind of the importance of an ecosystem and the rising tide and all these kind of things that need to bring us together to solve these problems. The problem is that we have to figure those things out from scratch. Like there's no, there's no like, oh, that institute will solve that for us. It's like, okay, how do we come together and kind of break barriers and try out new things? That's why that safety initiative I mentioned to you already is so encouraging. It's like, that's 50 companies willing to dig into their IP and put it out there in a public way to solve this public problem. So I'm, I'm actually very optimistic. I don't want to sound like yeah. um, a pessimist or, or overly humble. I think we kind of need to point out these problems 
otherwise they won't get solved. <laughs> but while I have you on the topic of, uh, of pointing out the problems, I'm going to yes. ask you to indulge me, which is when you mentioned that there are still some gaps we don't know about, in your mind, what are those big gaps um, right now to the extent that we, we even, you know, as you said, some of the technology is, is all within, uh, protected by IP and controlled by, by, by startups. And maybe you don't know all the answers, but at a general level, like what are the big unknowns at this point besides safety? So I'm going to answer this question, not as myself, but as the person who has the vantage point of being able to see the whole field. So these aren't Isha's opinions, but rather Isha's collected opinions <laughs> from having the opportunity of being able to talk and connect with and have relationships with so many people in the field. And the kind of three things that keep coming up as big gaps are one, standards and norms. Like what is going, how do we keep ourselves um, accountable? Like the field actually wants to, to create these systems of accountability because our current um, food system kind of only thinks about consumer safety. Like, Governance is really only about, is it safe for someone to put this in their mouth? It doesn't really govern environmental protection or the rights of animals, which is why our meat system looks the way mm -hmm. it looks. Like if we had those things, we wouldn't have the same problems that we have today. And so our field is really thinking about how do we create these interesting structures that keep cell ag on track and maybe also put pressure on existing fields to try to get on track too and actually think about the things that have formerly been externalities and realizing that there are no externalities in on earth. Like the, just when you modify a biological system, stuff happens and we need to actually be paying attention to that. Um, so standards and norms are one thing. Um, and I think the, the benefit of standards and norms for companies is that they can then tell a shared story. Each company is facing the same set of questions from every single interviewer and investor. Do you use animal products? What is the life cycle assessment? Is this safe? If there was a setup standard that's like, this is how CELAG operates, we adhere to the, this, this, and this principles, like just forward that link to that person, say we adhere to it and this is verified and whatever, and then we can move on as a field. Like the field has been stunted because those questions have not been answered in, in a unified way. Um, the second thing that's really, missing is like ways to scale. Um, the scaling, someone on a call the other day said, um, in order for CELAG to scale, it doesn't require funding, it requires financing. So I thought it was just an interesting thing. Like that, that's, um, we need like shared facilities for scale up. We need to be training talent who can focus on scale up. Like, Scale up is not just about putting a bunch of money into building one pilot plant because that pilot plant in itself is an experiment. Like there's a lot of work that needs to be done to scale. And probably a lot of that work can be done in a shared collective way rather than which company can raise the most money and like try to answer that question alone. Like it just isn't, it isn't productive for anyone. So this kind of shared facilities thing is, is another big gap. Um, and then the third one is training of people in the field. Um, when we think of training, we normally think of training people to 
join an industry and work in companies. But the training is actually like of the ecosystem of people who make a food system work, companies are just one piece. Who are the people who are actually like growing the crops that are going to go into the media for the cell formulation? Who are the people who are going to be inspecting the plants to see if they are safe? Who are the people who are going to be creating effective policy for this stuff because they actually understand how it works? And that's like a huge universe of people that goes well beyond just kind of training people to join the workforce in the way we normally think of it. Like it, it, it is a much bigger kind of um, ecosystem of individuals that need specific understanding. And this kind of ties back to your point about Facebook earlier. Um, like look at how people are trying to govern Facebook right now. They're just not equipped to govern it because they don't know how it works. Um, we don't want Celag to face that same stumbling block where people just don't know how to govern it so it's in governed improperly. You know, that's preventable. We can re really be bringing a lot more people into the understanding of this early. So anyway, you asked for three gaps. I gave you three gaps, um, standards and norms, shared facilities, and like ways to train people into the field. And those are all things that have come to me through people in industry and academia. Like these are these are big kind of infrastructure gaps. Those are big ones and, and I and I really like the way you laid it out. I think it it brings up the it really brings up the issue of um how are we going to define the way this technology and the the players in this ecosystem evolve whether they choose to go at it alone or they decide to do it collectively and you know you can see examples in the food industry but as you said you can look at the internet or any uh, it's the same story tends to repeat itself is there's there's a war between general market forces and the way companies scale and uh, attract more investment and acquire more market share that sometimes does it just makes them want to do things in exclusion of everyone else and not do it collaboratively and they only collaborate within um the same industry when they're when their backs against the wall when when regulators are breeding i've seen it happen mm -hmm. on i used to work in online advertising and there was i've I worked in privacy consumer privacy issues and all the startups in the in the in that space and all the eventually the bigger companies their way of operating was let's fight any regulation let's just do whatever we want to and then we will backtrack and try to course correct it when we are put, put and when pressure is put on us and mm -hmm. you know and and i think in 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 some ways our 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 system is designed to encourage that we we don't want to slow down innovation because some of what you're you know some of these concerns that we bring up about how we're designing this future industry i can i can i can hear the people who who think that's just a terrible idea because we're going to slow down the pace of innovation let let everyone just compete and outcompete each other and may the the baddest, biggest, fastest to scale, the one who can get the most amount of funding and can build a smart brand and go to market quickly, let them win it. Um, and that's usually how it goes in most industries. And this sort of does bring us back to um, some of the things I put a pin on in the beginning, which is, you know, 
how do we how do we shape how this technology is used and and to what extent is that genie out of the bottle already um and this tension i hear between uh not just private funding and public funding but also open source versus technology protected by intellectual property where does that landscape stand at the moment do we do we are we still at a point where it's early enough to to influence the startups in the space and the researchers in the space or are we talking about products being on the market in the US potentially within the next 12 to 18 months and that's just going to then have its own natural evolution from your vantage point how close are we to actually filling those gaps before we see products on the market we will not fill in those gaps before like there people say that uh eat just product in singapore is on the market i think that's like a maybe formality way of saying it's on the market it, it is and it isn't on the market um but we will absolutely see products in the market before that infrastructure builds out and that also is like a system thing like that's that's like kind of goes back to tech fund funding and like putting out uh your beta before it's that or i don't I, I don't know anything about that stuff you're probably more in with the lingo on that but just put something out and see what happens and that's you know you get feedback and that's how you improve it um and you know sellag is interesting because it's so vc driven and so putting things on the market selling them at a loss is like a very fine reasonable thing for companies to do um i wonder about what that means i mean in some ways you're putting an artificially priced meat on the market that's competing with another artificially priced meat on the market except one is just kind of subsidized by government and the other one subsidized by vc you know which one is more palatable to you is it is a big question but yeah i i don't really think we'll see those infrastructure gaps filled in because those are huge infrastructure gaps like think about creating a pilot facility that's like a lot of steel you know like that's like real physical stuff that takes a long time to build and it's not even just about building it it's about working in a collective way to figure out what needs to be built like what are we going to agree upon as the standardized aspects of the process and what parts of the process are, are where the ip lives it's still we don't know that like right now ip could be everywhere we just have no idea um so i think i answered your last part of your question i had a lot of ideas about the other things you were asking so i'm, I'm going to toss it back to you to see where we can go from here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to stress a little bit more on some of the, one of the gaps, which is the standards and norms. I think that's a very interesting one. I think uh, if you can make the case, uh, not you necessarily individually or as New Harvest, but if if the industry as a whole can make the case or, or the startups in the space can see that they stand to benefit on aligning on some standards and norms, it could be around um, you know, uh, supply chain issues. It could be around the sustainability standards. Is like how are they going to measure the inputs and the outputs from the production of uh, cell-based products uh, or cultured products? Um, I think that could be a benefit because then 
it's less work for individual companies to try to figure it out. It just makes common sense mm -hmm. that you align and you kind of get ahead of some of the pushback that you're inevitably going to uh, get, for, whether from consumers or the press or from regulators. And I think... I think if you can identify, and I'm now I'm not asking questions, I'm giving suggestions, but but if you can identify, yeah. I, I see the power in that. If you can identify, you know, the, the areas where individual companies benefit by coming together uh, in their collective mm -hmm. interest, and then other areas yeah. where they can do their own thing when it comes to brand and narrative, uh, and, and you can distinguish right. between the two, you can have a bit of a hybrid. Absolutely. It's, it is, what is the collective story you want to tell? Everyone's going to have a unique story. Like that's already emphasized through being a private company that seeks investment. So everyone has a unique value proposition, but what is the shared value proposition? And of that shared value proposition, which of that can be backed by data? And then how do we standardize that data? It, like it really does benefit the whole field and consumers and everyone to create like radical transparency around the things that we can unite around. Um, the hard thing is uniting around that kind of stuff. Like that is, that is a lot of, um, convening leadership that needs to happen. I am still very optimistic about it because I still think at the end of the day, every founder is in this because they want to see a better world because it's at the end of the day, it's a really hard way to make a better world. And it's a really hard way to make money. Um, so I think there's an opportunity, especially right now, because people are not making a profit. We're in this kind of shared conundrum of like having things that we need to collaborate on without academia existing. And so in, in some ways, I think that there's a capacity to generate systems of transparency and sharing amongst companies that could have never been created before because there's no academia. And, you know, for a long time, I thought that the best thing that could happen for SELAG is to receive huge government grants. And I still think that's a net positive thing, but I actually wonder if we would be able to have this kind of global convening around questions like safety, if that existed, because you could always just say like, oh no, that public stuff, like they're gonna do it. So we're in a really interesting time and place right now because there is no, oh, they're gonna do it. It's like, we have to do it. and. And each of the companies is seeing the responsibility of what are the things we need to figure out together. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it. I'm gonna keep going back to this, uh, the 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 Monsanto story and GMOs mm -hmm. because, as we've seen it happen before in the food system and in the food space, it's it's usually the narrative is controlled by those who control the products and the market, right? So let's look at where cellular agriculture stands right now. Who owns and controls the majority of the technology? And is there, I mean, to what extent, as you said, a lot of it is protected under uh, IP, which is within private companies at the moment. Um, how, like, how do we have any hope of not repeating the mistakes we've done in the past, if it is going to be controlled by private companies that can very well tomorrow, and maybe that is the plan for many of them, to license their technologies to um, bigger companies that control uh, huge parts of our food supply chain 
And that happens before any standards and norms are put in place. The next thing you know, you know, and not to name, I guess I can name names, Tyson or JBS is then controlling <laughs> the narrative of this technology. And then it, it's, it's, you can literally see where this is going to go. There's going to be, mm-hmm. a, you know, nonprofits, consumer groups, everyone's going to rally against it. Doesn't mean it'll fail. It could still succeed. But it is the same old story of consolidation, corporate power and control and something that could have been really um, this transformative tech that could usher in a new way of looking at our food system has now basically uh, been usurped by the, the, by the, the existing players in the space. And all the yep. startups either license to them or get bought by them and they sell out. And next thing you know... We really haven't achieved much, uh, or we've we've made mm-hmm. marginal improvements, perhaps. So, what are your thoughts on IP control of technology, open source versus private? How do we get out of this mess we're in right now? If there's, and is there time and hope for it? Wow, I'm laughing because that question is like the hugest question I've ever been asked. I think, but. Um, <laughs> First of all, I loved that. I love how you laid out kind of one potential future, which is what happens if we move forward in our current system and don't question our current system at all. I think it is our current system incentivizes for the cellular agriculture meat industry to look very similar to the current meat industry. Like it just, that's how the rules have been set up. And you know, I think I've spoken to people who who say, like, wouldn't it be great if Cargill makes cell cultured meat? Um, I think maybe that's marginally better, but I don't know if that, you know, that's a really low bar to set. Um, and I think even Cargill is thinking better more than that. Like, I, you know, Cargill started calling themselves a protein company recently, and they invest in a lot of algae and stuff, too. I think even Cargill is like ahead of, you know, thinking beyond <laughs> The idea that they just uh, stay the same but produce different products, um, and so I don't, you know, there's so much in your question, and there is really no direct answer. There's only kind of um, musing on where we could go, and you know, you ask, is there any hope for the fields? Right now, I think for me, all of my hope rests on personally knowing a lot of the founders and like really believing that they care. Um, That puts a lot of responsibility on the founder's shoulders to think about doing things differently because every pressure will, you know, not incentivize for that for the most part. but I, I think a new system is possible. And I don't, you know, I think that there's a lot of other factors at play beyond introducing a new technology into our current food system that that radically changes the game and does force us to think about new systems in general. One of them is the biggest pandemic that we've never talked about, which is African swine fever. You know, COVID has showed us a lot of cracks in our existing food system and the fact that we've changed from a holistic system to a very linear supply chain where one break, you know, one break in one of the links just like is, is havoc because we've linearized our system so much. 
Um, but African swine fever is a huge, huge pandemic that has been spreading among pigs. The mortality rate is up to 100%. Um, a lot of experts think that one in four pigs has died due to this disease. That's like 300 mil 350 million pigs potentially. Like if you if you looked at life on earth on a grand scale, COVID would be like absolutely nothing in comparison to this disease. Um, and we're really lucky that for some reason it hasn't really reached North America yet, but it has ravaged Asian um, industrialized farms and small farms and escaped into the wild. Um, so wild boar extinction, you know, is being threatened of wild boar. In Europe, they are using drones to like sniper wild boar to try and contain this virus. Like that's how crazy it is. Totally underreported. But that's an example of how our current food system is already crumbling apart. Like, I don't think salag is going to disrupt animal agriculture as much as animal agriculture is going to disrupt itself. Like that, salag could not wreak as much havoc as that virus has wreaked in the past two years. Um, so it's these kind of things that make me feel like we are recognizing the problems in our system and that this kind of whole concept of de-diversification, doubling down on like a couple high yield things and just like blasting them forward. Like we've, we've reached the absolute maximum of that with pigs. Chickens, I mean, we're trying to contain an avian virus like every year, more than once a year. Millions and millions of, of animals are killed just trying to contain these viruses. That is terrible for consumers. The price of meat is so high right now, it's only going to get higher. Um, and it's also terrible for farmers and business. Like you don't have to be, you know, a really smart business person to understand <laughs> that that is terrible for business. And then you add the layer of climate change on top of that. And, you know, we're just in a really, really precarious risk prone system. Um, and so why I'm so hopeful about CELAG is that I think cell, you know, our system is already transitioning because we've maxed out our planet on our current system. 75% of food comes from 12 species of plant and five species of animal, you know, through these kind of corporate consult, we've consolidated the things that we eat like so much, linearize them so much that they're just so risk prone right now. And so I think CELAG is our way to proactively move into the future because there is going to be an inherent like economies of scale that is related to being a monoculture driven like food source. I, it's really hard for me to imagine CELAG like that you can throw a anything into a pot and like meat's gonna come, like that's not gonna happen in the near term. It's going to probably like rely on corn and soy and a lot of the things that we already grow a lot of, at least in the beginning. Um, so there's going to be an inherent like really linearized aspect of the system. But what CELAG offers us is this way to alleviate so much land that we've dedicated to animals where bringing in like much more holistic ways of managing land I, I would love to see a lot more indigenous land management happen with that space. I'd love to see a lot more rewilding. I think a lot of the kind of regenerative agriculture practices become a lot more feasible when we don't need to 
feed like so many chickens and pigs and cows anymore. Um, that to me, that is inherent system changing. That's like rethinking literally the entire world and the surface of the planet. And that's the only way we're gonna be resilient enough to move forward as a human population on a climate change world. And like, I, I know I'm zooming out so much right now, but I think that's kind of where we have to be. Um, I, Dr. Lenore Newman is this amazing person that I've come to know over the past several years. And she writes about culinary extinction. And in her opinion, we ate all of the mammoths. And I called her one day and I'm like, how come I never knew that we ate all the mammoths? And she's like, well, some people think that the mammoths died because of climate change. And, and the reality is, is probably both of those things happened. Like I didn't know mammoths existed on all of the continents and then humans showed up and they went extinct kind of like as the humans showed up. Um, and so around that time, agriculture was introduced. And so we are still hunting, but agriculture was there kind of as like a buffer system, more reliable source of food, even though we hunted too. So it was kind of in introducing resilience and over time we hunt less and there's more agriculture. But, um, you know, think about that. Like we saw extinction happen. We saw the limits of our current system of eating meat. We introduced agriculture in a climate change world, the end of the ice age. We are exactly here right now. We are seeing the limits of agriculture right now and the linearization of our current system. We are in a climate change world. We're being forced to rethink everything. Cell ag is our way to proactively create capacity for kind of the next thousands of years of humans. And in my opinion, and this is me zooming like way, way out, but I think, I think that's how big we need to be thinking is how are we going to sustain life on, on this planet and actually create a better world for earthlings? And then we can think about traveling in the space and all that kind of stuff, but we need to make the most of what we have here. And we really haven't yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that reframing because it, you're right. When you, I, I think we were we were going down a bit of a pessimistic road, and and I think that reframing brings it back to why one should be excited and hopeful that there's there are potential ways out of it. Because I think you said a lot of really good stuff there, and and one thing that you said early on is is the is the fact that we are going to feel the impacts of the extraction of our natural resources, the, the, us pushing up planetary boundaries, uh, that compounded with uh, the unfolding climate crisis, which is no longer a thing that is going to happen. It is happening as we speak. Uh, yeah. It is going to put pressure, increasing pressure on this this uh, the, the the terrible decisions and the terrible system that we've created that produces our food. So, in a way, that that pressure is going to force change, and when yes. when that change is going to be forced, there there is going to be um, the a, a desperate lookout for alternatives. And I think if and I don't claim to know anyone who works at uh, any of the big meat companies um, so I don't know what they think but if I was there and if I, I knew people there I would, given their market size and given their, their their market share at the moment I would be thinking long and hard about what is the company and its future going to look like uh, given these impacts right given 
the fact that we are going to have supply chain disruptions, we're going to potentially have more pandemics, and we're going to have floods and uh, wildfires and um, you know populations that are, we're going to have a refugee crisis eventually. I used to think that these are things we could avoid. I've increasingly started to realize that we have got to start shaping the future while things start to fall apart and hopefully hopefully it doesn't get too bad before we we get to that better place so to speak right mm-hmm. so that's why i appreciate mm-hmm. you you taking that that bigger view because when you contextualize it from a framing of look at where we are right now and look at how bad things are if you truly pay attention to things um we have no choice but to look at more than just our current ways of farming um, mm-hmm. Not because we we not just because you are you know it's fun technology to just experiment with. I think we kind of have to, and if that's mm-hmm. the case, then you might as well get started now, um, and you might as well do your best to build the best possible system. And you know you, you and I I love the fact that you're taking this um, expansive ecosystem view of the technologies and the players in the space, and hopefully steer them towards. Uh, building some sort of a coalition that 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 is committed to certain guidelines and standards, so we don't make terrible mistakes with as we scale up this technology and we end up in a place where we end up regretting that we went down this path. Why wouldn't we do that? Haven't we learned enough? I mean, and, and at this point where we are as humanity in 2021, where we 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 we're basically you know heading towards a cliff right now. Um, if we can't do it now, then, you know, we should just probably give up on that idea that we will ever have a thriving human population on this planet. So I think it's kind of a existential imperative that we do take mm-hmm. that big picture view. And I think VCs and uh, founders and, mm-hmm. you know, foundations, everyone should be having this discussion, not in a, mm-hmm. you know, just in a, it's just fun to 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 think about the future more because we are forced to think about the future right now and we're forced to confront that future in the present we live in right now. So I yes. really appreciate everything you said. Yeah. No, we are we are <laughs> we are in the future in that we haven't seen this world before. Like in some ways it is unrecognizable what is happening around us to the point that we want to deny it. Like I, I don't think it's a surprise that we are seeing so many um, kind of conspiracy theories and stuff pop up now because the reality is just so unrealistic compared to the 80s or like, or even 10 years ago when things you understood just functioned the way you thought they would. And um, I, I get so much inspiration from the people that I work with, but one of them sent me this article the other day Um, written by Joanna Macy, who is a really awesome kind of eco-philosopher. And she talks about how in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this concept of the bardo, which is a transition place, the world between worlds, and how it's like so terrifying in this place because nothing, you know, the sands are shifting, nothing makes sense. That is exactly where we are right now. And she talks about how in Buddhism, when you enter the bardo, you are presented with a mirror and you have to just stare at it and, and uh, do not avert your gaze. Like look, make, pay radical attention to what is happening 
and like look at yourself. That's in some ways, I think, you know, I, I used to be pretty down on social media and left a lot of platforms. So maybe my perspective is informed by not being on social media that much. But in some ways, I think social media is that mirror. Like, like never before, we really understand, like we can see what's happening on the globe. Like the issues that are popping up are somewhat regional, but somewhat global. Like the conversations we're having about inequality and everything are huge conversations. And the more I meet young people in their early teens, like they don't even post photos on Instagram. They only share stories about how we need to be a better society and like how to understand the systems that we're in and why they're broken. Um, so, you know, I feel like Selag is one way, you know, an, another force for disruption, similar to climate change and anything. The only thing is that humans are driving that force of disruption. And so that's what gives me that optimism. And it's going to be scary for these next few years. And so we just need to remember that, that, that scariness, like we need to harness it and use it to realize the better world and confront the problems with our current everything and just try to create a better world. Like we're not going to create, we're not going to be designing it, you know, overnight. Um, but we can really question what's wrong with our current systems and try to try to figure something out. And so I, I love this idea of kind of zooming out and looking at the transition from agriculture to like, or maybe not agriculture, domestication of organisms towards domestication of cells as like an of equivalent man magnitude as our transition from hunting to agriculture, because we still hunt, like those things still continue. They just continue in a more diversified way and like this is the magnitude of transition that we're at and there's a lot of responsibility that rests on the people advancing these technologies but I think when we zoom out that much like it, it becomes a lot easier to think of how do we solve these collective issues because we just have to like it's it's not about if you want to opt in or not like it just needs to be done. Yeah, and I and I I think you know that back to what we said uh, I just can't agree more with everything you just laid out. Um, and it also makes me wonder why, and this is someone, this is somewhat as an outsider who has not been as deeply involved in the cellular agriculture space. I have been involved in the food industry for 10 years, largely in the plant-based side of things. And I've seen how that has evolved and grown. And, and, and I, and again, a lot of that growth is now, uh, facing some constraints, uh, although some would disagree with me, but I feel like it has certain limitations under which that that industry is evolving, uh, where it is mm -hmm. too dependent on existing, you know, modes of operation in the food system, and and maybe mm -hmm. cellular agriculture, and probably I've heard it for the first time today, has this opportunity to be to create a new sort of a new vision of food, right, and and do it in a way that's that that's not again done like the way we've done other innovations in the food industry that it isn't um so i guess what i'm trying to say is that i i think what what this space truly needs and i'm starting to conclude based on what you've shared it really needs a new narrative uh, i actually don't think that i've heard this narrative before i think the narrative that i hear and see everywhere is 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 almost in some ways sometimes equating 
the pace of growth of cellular agriculture and the potential almost on par with what's happening with plant-based when it is definitely nowhere close to where plant-based is right now. And also this assumption that we often make about the, the, the deployment of this technology, if you want to call it that, is that it has to, that it doesn't matter who owns and controls it. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter who makes it because um, it is inherently better. And that there is some truth to that statement, because if you're if you can make meat safely uh, without having to farm animals uh, in horrific factory farms uh, and slaughter them, well, that is a win in some regards. But, but yeah. even that, like the system does not even incentivize that. That Even that is a promise of the companies that animals will not be slaughtered. That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there isn't, I'm, I'm not saying the companies are like going to slaughter animals in yeah. secret. But I'm saying there's nothing preventing that from happening. And like, we're hoping that like, there's inherent economies and like efficiencies in growing food from cells compared to animals that will make it unlikely that that will happen. But like, you know, we don't, we don't really know that. Um, You know, when I started New Harvest, a lot of people would ask like, what kind of organization are you? Like, are you an environmentalist organization or an animal activist group? And I think our organization is so weird because we are really focused on like one solution and like, what does it need for that solution to get its time, like get its time to shine, you know? Um, I think the, I, I really, really think it's a missed opportunity and maybe even problematic to lump plant-based alternatives with CELAG because the challenges are so fundamentally different that how do you tell the story of what those things need when you're lumping them together? Like you can make, you can currently make seitan in your home with a very, very low cost ingredient. (laughs) You cannot do that with CELAG. You know, like there's so much to unpack about biotech, about academia, about public-private partnerships, blah, blah, blah with CELAG, whereas with plant-based, it's kind of like supply chain, what are you gonna call it, that kind of stuff. And what happens when you merge it is like you can you confuse the issues. So you start thinking about things like, oh, what are we gonna call cell-based meat? That's not the biggest problem right now. Like that, what the label looks like is not the problem that matters right now. And so in some ways by putting together the plant-based and the CELAG, you're focusing more on the problem that you're trying to solve than you are focusing on the solution. And that's kind of one of my problems with nonprofits in general is they focus on problems, not on solutions. Like unpacking a problem is so different than unpacking a solution. Yeah. And I also think there's somehow inherent sometimes value biases, which I've, I've talked about before, which is it depends what problem you're solving for, right? Because if you're trying to solve uh, you know, you can list the problems with the food system from everything to abuse of farm workers, to abuse of animals, to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the, you know, exploitation of natural resources and climate change and all of that. Now, if you care about only one or two of those things, you approach every solution to that problem purely from that lens only. And you yeah. and you are going to intentionally or unintentionally be completely... Um, oblivious to anything else or going to you you just you just won't care about it because you don't you don't frame your solutions to tackle 
um, those problems at all. So I, I do think it's also the f- problem framing is important. <laughs> like what what are you trying yeah. to solve for? If you're trying to get rid of animals in the food chain, uh, okay, that's that's maybe one problem. Maybe it'll in, and by virtue of doing that, you might solve some other problems. But you're still right. just tackling one problem. You might end up with more problems actually. Right. I mean, that's why at the end of the day, we're not just putting out products like the it, it is not enough to say that we're putting a product out um, because that fails to see the inherent connectedness of our food system. And there's there's this amazing influential designer, Natsai Chiesa, who writes who said the design of biology is a design of systems, not stuff. And so the design of anything in food is always biology. And so we're always actually designing a system, not stuff. And so when you put a plant-based, or sorry, not a plant-based, sorry, now I'm distracted. See, it's distracting. No, when you put a, you know, when you grow meat from cells and put that on the market, you are actually, there is all kinds of system things happening. And like, you can either choose to embrace that complexity and like steer it into a productive thing, or you can just kind of like ignore it, just like everything else that happens. And then you really fail to realize everything. Like you fail to realize the opportunity that is that transition. Um, So anyway, I, I love what you're pointing out here. Like complexity is at the heart of our food system and understanding it and embracing it and like wanting to ask those questions is the only thing that will get us towards a better one. So I'll like, I'll close out on a positive note. Uh, I think we've been heading in that direction in general, but uh, with, with a heavy dose of skepticism, at least on my end, um, because, you know, I feel this tension sometimes between the perfect world we want to create and the reality of the world we live in and the incentives Mm -hmm. people have to not create that perfect world and to actually just keep status quo going as it is. And I, and I see that tension every day in, in any form of business that is always going to be trade-offs and you've got to make decisions. And um, especially when your incentives are driven by uh, investors who want you to scale as much as they want you to do good uh, you you end up having to you automatically are, are driven in a certain direction that even if you don't want to um, mm-hmm. because what's the option um, give up the work you're doing so it uh, my my point with a positive view is that I you know what would you love to see um, what would you like the future to look like for cellular agriculture if if you can fulfill on this promise of this work that you're doing to to reshape the food system and i've heard you also say some really and we didn't get time to talk about it this interesting idea that we should also reimagine foods and not try to necessarily replicate uh, chicken nuggets and burgers and maybe just look at this as an opportunity to uh, and i think that this could be a separate conversation but i think we also have to we have to explore the culinary possibilities here as well, which is a missing component. We sometimes, when we talk about changing the food system, we forget that that food is culture. Food is personal. Food is food is uh, enjoyable, and we can't ignore that side of the food world and just talk about it in terms of uh, bioreactors and tech and 
uh, valuations and scale. <laughs> and scale, right? So, so what does this future look like? I mean, if you can maybe you know, throw some ideas or sum it up in terms of what would you like that to to be, and 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 if if that is achieved, so it's a two part question in that sense. Which is, and if that's achieved, what 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 benefit would the world see? Like, what positive impact will we see? First of all, I love this question because we put together a new strategic plan last year and we have a mission, but we do not have a vision. <laughs> and the reason why we didn't have a vision is because we felt like you couldn't just put into one sentence the world that you want to see, um, especially for something that could disrupt a food system. You can't just say we want the world to be a better place. I mean, th those vision statements are either so vague that they mean nothing and you can't disagree with them. Or they're so specific with like, well, what about this? What about that? So we have no vision. So we've been thinking a lot about how is visioning like the, this powerful practice that everyone in Selac needs to constantly be doing in light of every new piece of news. So like that JBS cyber attack, how does that affect Selag? This swine fever, how does that, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I will say in the kind of least words that the world that I want to see with Selag is not business as usual, but instead is a new world order, which I'm laughing because I would even like cringe at like hearing this later, but there is, we already are on the road towards a new world order. It could either be optimistic or pessimistic, utopian or dystopian. How do we proactively steer it towards something that we want to see? And there's a lot of conversations happening simultaneously and not all of them are related to food, but all of them are related to food. So I'll give you a very specific example. So here in Canada, in Edmonton, you know, a, a very live conversation is, do we give land back to the indigenous people that we took it from? Like we are all settlers on indigenous land. How do we give it back? Like we're, we are recognizing that we're on Treaty 6 land and that we're on this territory all the time, but isn't that lip service un unless we like actually want to hand over land? And I, you know, I had an allergic reaction to it at first because it felt so much like lip service. And then I realized that the thing that I'm working on day to day like promises to alleviate so much land. Um, you know, we talk about how growing meat for from cells could require like 90% less land than growing beef, for example, on a ranch. Suddenly these kind of justices that are possible, that are like ancient, that are hundred year old injustices could be possible because we've alleviated land to make more efficient growth. And we could, you know, reintroduce indigenous land management and start de uh, sorry start re-diversifying our world and how we feed the people and how we exist on this planet. And so these this is kind of the new world order thinking that I'd like to encourage is like how do we see the inherent linked linkedness of all the issues that are happening right now and reimagine a new world. You know, we we always talk about capitalism versus socialism. It's not it's not as simple as that. Like we human beings created the world. We can create literally anything that we want. It doesn't have to have a name already. There doesn't need to be books for it already. 
we can just be guided by our values and try and create this new world. And I'll, I'll kind of leave it with like one maybe oversimplified wish for cellular agriculture is that I hope that cellular agriculture becomes a force for rediversifying everything. Um, if, if anything, our food system has de-diversified. Fewer companies creating stuff, fewer species, fewer ways of growing those species, fewer genetic differences, you know, fewer people participated, you know, like last, 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 all in the sake of optimization and efficiency. What if we use CELAG to re-diversify things? So alleviate land so we can actually diversify how land is used to grow food. Um, what if we use it to introduce more people into the participation of creating food products? What if we use it to actually create new food products that we have never seen before in the same way as when we introduced um, fermentation into our foods? We have fermented foods are the perfect example of the world we want to see. You can get things that are fermented in every single country, uniquely created that way, sometimes from unique cell cultures. That's what that's the world I want to see is a re-diversified one. Isha, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation and um, I, I think your work you're doing is really important and I'm, I can't wait to see how you and New Harvest can help shape this uh, new world order. I think, you know, you, if, you, if, if you're going to have big thinking, why not just think really big and why not just actually use this strange, um, scary time we're living through uh, to imagine something better and actually get to work on it. So um, I think I think as much as we we don't have answers to a lot of things, I do think that I hope this conversation, at least for me, it helped me cl helped clarify a lot of my thinking around um, cell ag in general, uh, but also potentially how we are still at the early stage where we can shape this industry uh, as it develops into an industry to, to be different, to kind of reimagine the way that we do things and also have these companies be successful at doing it. Um, I think there's still hope and I appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. This was a super um, energizing conversation. Thank you for advancing the narrative. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to EFTP. Co. That's EFTP.co. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.